The Holy Gospel according to Matthew, the 10th chapter. The Gospel is printed on the back of your bulletin, or you can follow along in your pew Bibles, starting on page 791. Whoever welcomes you welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. Whoever welcomes a prophet in the name of a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And whoever welcomes a righteous person in the name of a righteous person will receive the reward of the righteous. And whoever gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones in the name of a disciple, truly I tell you, none of these will lose their reward. Word of God, word of life. Please be seated. Our preaching text today uh, is from the book of Acts, chapters 13 and 14, selected verses. Probably the easiest way to follow along is uh, with the text that's printed on the back of your bulletins, but certainly you're welcome uh, to turn in those few Bibles to page 896, where that reading begins with chapter 13 of the book of Acts, beginning with the first verse. Now, in the church of Antioch there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manin, a member of the court of Herod, the ruler, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Now skipping ahead to chapter 14, verse 8. In Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet and had never walked, for he had been crippled from birth. He listened to Paul as he was speaking, and Paul, looking at him intently and seeing that he had faith to be healed, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And the man sprang up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language, The gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought oxen and, and garlands to the apostles. Barnabas, uh, he brought garlands to the gates, and, and the crowds uh, wanted to offer sacrifice. When the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd, shouting, Friends, why are you doing this? We are mortals just like you. And we bring you good news that you should turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to follow their own ways, yet he has not left himself without a witness in doing good, giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons and filling you with food and your hearts with joy. Even with these words, they scarcely restrain the crowds offering sacrifice to them. Word of God, word of life. Thanks be to God. Dear friends in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father and our risen Lord and Savior Jesus the Christ. Amen. So I spent some time thinking this week trying to come up with 
the best examples that I could from the sports world, at least, of a certain victory that turned into nearly impossible defeat. I don't know if you have any sports nuts out there, but just bear with me for a couple minutes. A couple examples popped into my mind. Uh, I don't suppose we have any boxing fans out here. Um, but I have thought right away about the Mike Tyson-Buster Douglas fight. Anybody remember that one? Uh, 1990, it seemed like a good example. Uh, at least when I thought of it earlier, it seemed like a good example. Uh, but at the time, 1990, Mike Tyson was, was undefeated. And if you remember those days, he just sort of regularly crushed his opponents in like less than two minutes. It was unbelievable. There was no way that Buster Douglas was going to beat Mike Tyson. Uh, but he did. <laughs> Tenth round knockout. And it was crazy. Uh, take my word for it. Okay? Um, but then, then I got to thinking about uh, the New York Yankees and the time that the New York Yankees were beaten up on the Boston Red Sox uh, again in 2004. So you got to go back in your memory, back to those days, before the Boston Red Sox got good again. Uh, they were terrible in those days, or they were pretty good, but they could never get past the Yankees. The, the Yankees had won 26 World Series championships uh, by that time in 2004. The Red Sox, they hadn't won since 1918. And the Yankees had won like over 100 games that year uh, for the third year in a row. And in those days, they always beat the Red Sox. They just always beat them. And in that series, they were beating them again. First three games. First three games, the Yankees beat the Red Sox. One more win, the Yankees would be in the World Series again, going for their 27th title. Everybody hated the Yankees back then. Um, but it seemed like a done deal, right? But somehow, against all odds, there are the Red Sox. They did it. They won the next four games and went on to win their first World Series since 1918. It was amazing. But I'd have to say that, that for me anyway, the greatest example of uh, this sort of impossible defeat in the sports world, at least, is the 1980 uh, U.S. men's hockey team victory over the Soviet Union in the Olympic Games. Some of you maybe remember all the fervor around that game at that time. But for nearly 20 years, right, the Soviets had basically had professional hockey players playing for them. Everybody knew it. Um, and they just dominated international hockey. They won the gold medal at the Olympics in 1956, 1964, 1968, 1972, 1976, and they were expected to do the same here in 1980. And uh, they especially dominated the Americans during that time. And the American team in 1980 was just a bunch of no-name college players. The U.S. had no chance. Be like a group of uh, Canadian college football players taking on the New England Patriots, right? He ain't gonna win that game, and the U.S. Olympic men's hockey team wasn't gonna win that game, but they did. They won four to three. It was crazy awesome. I mean, unless you were a Russian, then it wasn't. But yeah, that's their problem. Uh, anyway, so that's thank you for indulging that moment. I had a lot of fun remembering those things, but the reason that my mind went to sort of impossible, impossible defeat in the face of what should be certain victory is it has a connection to our reading from Acts chapter 13 and 14. But before we get into that, I think we gotta figure out where we are in this book of Acts. We kind of dropped into the middle of it here. Um, I'd encourage you to read the whole book of Acts. We did a preaching series on it last summer, but 
but it would be a great exercise to grab that uh, book and, and read it through in the coming weeks. But um, Acts tells the story of the early church, the, the time of Jesus' followers after Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension. And the first few chapters of Acts are just, they're full of drama. As the Holy Spirit, this third person of the triune God, works in and through the apostles to spread the church. Peter's preached a couple of wonderful sermons, very effective sermons anyway, uh, in and around Jerusalem. And now this early church has several thousand believers. Um, these believers, they sell their possessions. They share with one another so everybody has what they need. But of course, there's been some difficult moments in this early church too. The apostles face persecution, and um, the others uh, who follow experience that persecution too. Chapter 8, Stephen, one of the faithful who's called upon to care for widows and others in need, is accused of blasphemy by the Jewish leaders who did not follow Jesus, and Stephen is put to death. And you may remember that one of the leaders who oversaw that execution of Stephen was named Saul. He was certain, Saul was, that these followers of Jesus were out of their mind, that they were departing from the true faith of their ancestors. So Saul dedicated his life to arresting them, to bringing them to justice, even death if necessary. And then this amazing story in chapter 9 of the book of Acts, as Saul was riding along, Jesus himself appears to Saul, knocks him to the ground. Saul is blinded. He has to stagger his way into Damascus where a man named Ananias has been called by the same Jesus Christ to restore Saul's sight. And suddenly, right, when his eyes are open, he realizes that this story of Jesus is the real deal. And even more, he knows that in his vision, Jesus has called him to be the primary missionary to the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people in the world. So then, our text last week, which I thought... Uh, was covered beautifully by Michael and Johanna, discussed this new era in the church, the inclusion of Gentiles. Peter, really important person in the early church, um, he has this, this vision in the very next chapter of Acts that um, talks about how Gentiles, non-Jewish people, will now need to be welcomed into the growing church. Okay, So now we get to the point of the book of Acts that we're in today. And all the pieces seem to be in place for an even more amazing stretch of success for the growing church, right? I mean, what could stop the church now? The chief persecutor of the church is now its number one missionary, right? Uh, he's no longer Saul, but Paul. A series of debates among the other apostles not only resolves with the acceptance of Paul as an apostle, but the acceptance of Gentiles, non-Jews, into the church. And so now, finally, we get to chapter 13, and the church is ready, ready to send Paul and Barnabas off to Roman cities to preach the gospel, to plant new churches, to fill this new growing church with Gentile believers. And with all that effort, with all the drama leading up to this moment, with all the evidence of God's hand active in the whole bit, how could it possibly not succeed, right? Funny story, though. Uh, it doesn't. <laughs> Um, not at first. Some people believed, yes, but with, with all the drama leading up to Paul's departure, you would have expected a lot more. But if you read the story, most of the places that Paul and Barnabas visited 
were in fact filled with angry people um, who weren't that interested in what they had to say and in fact asked them to leave. Sometimes not even very politely. Um, that's the part we skipped over between chapter 13 and 14. Maybe they thought it was too violent for uh, people to read, but you should go read it. Don't just take my word for it. You should go read it. Um, place after place, just ask Paul and Barnabas, leave. And so they did leave. In town after town, some people believed, most people got angry, and Paul and Barnabas left. And then finally, in chapter 14, the part we did read, they have a little success. Paul, by the power of Christ, he healed a lame man, and soon the whole town was rejoicing. Finally, right, we have people ready to hear the gospel. Uh, not quite. <laughs> it seems that the people thought Paul and Barnabas were Hermes and Zeus. Greek gods who come down from heaven to bless them with their present. I mean, that's a nice compliment, I guess. Nobody's ever thought I was Hermes. But um, that's not at all what Paul and Barnabas had in mind. They were trying to totally change their understanding of who the one true God really is, to proclaim to them um, the good news of God's Son, Jesus Christ. And instead, the people took this miraculous sign that Paul and Barnabas were the false gods that they worshipped every day. So this is not good. Right? Not good at all. And when Paul and Barnabas break the news to the people of Lystra, they, well, they don't take it very well. They stoned Paul until they thought he was dead and dragged him out of town. Right? The Yankees thought it was bad when the Red Sox beat him four games in a row. Right? But miraculously, Paul gets up unharmed when he's surrounded by the believers of Christ. And then Paul and Barnabas once again find themselves another place to preach. Now, Paul did have some moments of success in his ministry, no doubt about it. I would even say Paul is the most influential person in the history of the church besides Jesus himself. But it's so important to remember that even Paul had his struggles. Even Paul had those more than bad days, I mean stretches of days, bad weeks, bad months, bad years. His life was threatened. He failed many times as a preacher. He was, he was asked to leave many, many towns and never come back. This amazing, influential, incredible evangelist had failure after failure and after failure sometimes. He was trying to do the right thing, but time and time again, things didn't go the way that he'd hoped. Now, I don't suppose anybody in this room has any experience with things like that, right? That, that maybe you've ever found yourself having one of those days, or one of those weeks, or one of those months, right? You ever find yourself like Paul, trying to be a good neighbor, trying to be a good person, a good, a good uh, family member, a good friend, only to have it blow up in your face? I've been visiting with many people the last week or so, uh, filled with despair. Once again, in recent days, with news of another school shooting, it's been 20 years since Columbine. And by my measure, not one meaningful piece of legislation has been passed from our elected leaders. Not that people haven't been trying, haven't been shouting till they're blue in the face at times to get something done, but nobody with the authority to get anything done seems to be willing to make any meaningful changes. And that's just one example. You could come up with 10 more, just like this, in our family lives, our community lives, even in our lives as a congregation, right, where we strive to make 
effective change, where we try to transform people's lives with the love and mercy of God, to infect others with the love of Christ. And it falls on deaf ears, or try as we might, we feel like we can't make a difference, that no one's listening, that we can relate to this rocky start that Paul and Barnabas experienced in that first missionary journey. So how, how did Paul deal with these things? How did he deal with colossal failure after he seemed destined for so much success? Simply this, I would say. Paul always believed that if God had called him to the work, then the suffering was never a sign of failure, but something that God had called him to as well. Suffering, Paul says again and again, brings him to greater reliance on God. Throughout his ministry, as he was beaten, shouted at, hunted, harassed, arrested, imprisoned, Paul maintained, crazy as it sounds, that his suffering was a sort of gift because it deepened his trust and reliance on God and reminded him of the way that Jesus had suffered on his behalf on the cross. That's one way that Paul dealt with that kind of failure. The other way is that uh, the other way that Paul dealt with all that failure and trouble was to focus his eyes regularly on the good in his life. It wasn't all bad. Paul's preaching led many to faith. Not everyone threw stones at him. Some heard and believed. And so when Paul was experiencing trouble, he, experienced, he, he, he focused on what was good. Like Paul writes in a wonderful letter to the Philippians, which he wrote from prison, by the way, um, Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. Finally, beloved, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is pleasing, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, and if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And the God of peace is with you. And so my message to you this morning, friends, is to keep on serving God in the ways that God has given you to serve. Keep on trusting in Christ. Keep on striving to do good where God has placed you. When the struggles pile up, do not despair. Do not think that God has left you. I pray that, that your suffering would somehow, some way, become even a gift to you. Bring you closer to God and His Son, Jesus Christ, who suffered on your behalf as well. And I, I further pray that even in the midst of your struggles, you would see the gifts of God that remain in your life and that your hearts would be filled with peace. In the name of Christ, amen.